Well, during this hour, <clears throat> we're going to explore equanimity experientially with a guided meditation. And then I'm going to say some words about equanimity. <clears throat> we'll get into a little bit of the, of the nuances of it. So just begin by going inside. And as a very brief preamble, equanimity is one of the four Brahma-viharas, or immeasurables, or divine abodes. The others are loving-kindness, compassion, and sympathetic joy. Equanimity is the stability of mind that allows you to be present with an open heart no matter how wonderful or difficult the conditions are. And so in this weekend, finding joy and balance in challenging times, an important consideration is just what is this equanimity? And it's said that the, the boundless qualities of loving-kindness, compassion, and sympathetic joy all stem from equanimity. In a way, it's kind of like the glue that holds them all together. And by definition, equanimity is open-hearted, ceaselessly compassionate. So allow your attention to rest in the movement of the breath. And just contemplate for a moment, reflect for a moment what it would be like to bring a heart and a mind that's has balance and equanimity, a peaceful heart, what would that be like to bring that into the world, into your relationships, your communities? And to the best that you're able in this moment, allow yourself to Feel that inner sense of balance and ease. going to offer you some phrases, and with each breath, begin to repeat and reflect those phrases internally. Breathing in, I calm my body. Breathing out, I calm my mind. May I be balanced. May I be at peace. Breathing in, I calm my body. Breathing out, I calm my mind. May I be balanced. May I be at peace.
Breathing in, I calm my body. Breathing out, I calm my mind. May I be balanced. May I be at peace. Now allow that sense of calm to broaden even more into a spacious equanimity. And reflecting on the truthful acknowledgement that all created things arise and pass away. Joys and sorrows, pleasant and unpleasant events, people, buildings, animals, nations, even whole civilizations. Let yourself just rest in the middle of that flow of change. It's the great flow of nature. And when we can ride with nature and not resist and fight it, we have peace. And now with allowing your attention to remain on the breath, reflect on these phrases, repeating internally each phrase with each breath. May I learn to see the arising and passing of all things with equanimity and balance. May I be open and balanced and peaceful. May I learn to see the arising and passing of all things with equanimity and balance. May I be open and balanced and peaceful. May I learn to see the arising and passing of all things with equanimity and balance. May I be open and balanced and peaceful. Now, bring to mind a loved one or a friend. And if you're able, establish a clear visualization of that being. 
And if you're not so good at visualizations, a, a good felt sense of what it's like to be with them, near them. See their face. Feel their essence. And reflect on these phrases. Direct these phrases to that loved one. May you learn to see the arising and passing of all things with equanimity and balance. May you be open and balanced and peaceful. May you learn to see the arising of all things with equanimity and balance. May you be open and balanced and peaceful. As you repeat those phrases, hold that image of that being and continue to offer from your heart these wishes for them. May you learn to see the arising of and passing of all things with equanimity and balance. May you be open and balanced and peaceful. Now, choose another loved one or friend or, or a benefactor, someone who has reached out and helped you sometime in the past. And again, visualization, felt sense. and generate to that being these wishes. May you learn to see the arising and passing of all things with equanimity and balance. May you be open and balanced and peaceful. May you learn to see the arising and passing of all things with equanimity and balance. May you be open and balanced and peaceful. And as you continue to reflect on this person, It's traditional to acknowledge that all beings are heirs to their actions. All beings receive the fruits of their actions. For the most part, their lives arise and pass away according to the deeds created by them, for the most part. But in the end, we can't act for them. We can't let go for them or love for them.
and holding the image of one of the loved ones, friend, benefactor. You might explore the effect of these phrases. Your happiness and suffering depend on your actions and not on my wishes for you. Your happiness and suffering depend on your actions and not on my wishes for you. As you hold that being and reflect and feel the truth of that, Your happiness and your suffering depend on your actions and not on my wishes for you. And finally, Consider these phrases and repeat these phrases, holding one of those beings. May you rest with a peaceful heart. May you find balance and peace. May you have compassion and equanimity for all the events of the world. May you rest with a peaceful heart. May you find balance and peace. May you have compassion and equanimity with all the events of the world. May you rest with a peaceful heart. May you find balance and peace. May you have compassion and equanimity with all the events of the world. And now saying goodbye to that being or those beings. And just resting in the gentle rhythm of your breath. Not grasping or pushing away anything. Make yourself a comfortable stretch, stand up if you have to, take a little 30 second break, and then I'll speak a little more about equanimity. I hope you found that useful.
It's a little Zen story from China. Uh, purportedly took place in the 1700s. It's a familiar story. A young girl in the village was pregnant. Her parents were furious and demanded to know who the father was. At first, she wouldn't confess. But after a while, the anxious and embarrassed girl finally pointed to Hakuin, the Zen master who everyone revered for living such a pure life. The outraged parents and other relatives immediately went to Hakuin and confronted him with their daughter's accusation. You can just picture the mob scene there at the gates of the monastery. And he greeted them and he replied replied to their accusations. Is that so? And so a number of months later when the child was born, the parents brought it to Hakuin. And now he was viewed as a pariah by the whole village. Uh, You can imagine donations were kind of on the downhill to that monastery. And so they demand, They brought the child and they demanded, okay, this is your responsibility. You take care of the child. And Hakuin looked at him and calmly responded, is that so? As he received the child. So for a number of months, many months, he took care of this child. But eventually the, the young woman couldn't couldn't live with the lie that she had told. And she, she said that the real father was this young man in the village, and she had accused Hakuin to cover it up. So naturally, the whole family again goes back up to the monastery, apologizes profusely for what, is, what has happened, and asks for the child back. And Hakuin responded, as you could guess, Is that so? As he handed the child back to the family. Now that little story of Hakuin really demonstrates equanimity at its most refined, uh, in its most refined nature. That astounding evenness that he displayed in the face of hostility and blame, and basically the ruination of his monastery, or it seemed like. So there's, there's kind of a clean power of equanimity that you can feel in this story. I mean, it's, it's heroic, but there's no ego push to it. It's a kind of different kind of power. It's more foundational in a way. And if you reflect back on your life, I'll bet, you, I'll bet each of you can find a situation in your life that, that you met with that kind of foundational power. Something challenging comes up. But then a feeling comes over you, I, I can handle this. I can deal with this. I can be with this. And then in that situation, if you reflect back on it, you probably went through it with a calm acceptance. Kind of a grace. And probably in that situation, feeling that equanimity, whatever thoughts, words, or actions were skillful. You know, whatever you did was a little more skillful coming from that space. So this equanimity, it's a combination of balance and steadiness. And one of those four immeasurables, as I mentioned, the divine abodes. I mean, they, those four elements, those four energies, so to speak, those four emotions, they're really the, they're really the pinnacle of human decency the pinnacle of human potential. 
And briefly, the others, many of you know them, but briefly, the others are loving-kindness, which is an unpossessive friendliness or love. A friendliness or love that doesn't discriminate. That's the challenging part. Compassion, often described as the, the uh, quivering of, of the heart in response to suffering, yours or another's. And sympathetic joy is, is taking the joy, feeling joy for the gain and, and benefit and joy of another. And sometimes that's a challenge. You like people to be happy when something good happens to them, but maybe not so happy as they are. This is uh, from Nyanapanakatara, who is a practicing monk and a legendary scholar. And he says this about the, the, he calls them the four attitudes. The four attitudes of loving kindness, compassion, sympathetic joy, and equanimity are said to be excellent or sublime because they are the ideal way of conduct toward living beings. The ideal way of conduct toward living beings. They provide, in fact, the answer to all situations arising from social contact. They are the great removers of tension, the great peacemakers in social conflict, and the great healers of wounds suffered in the struggle of existence. They level social barriers, build harmonious communities, awaken slumbering benevolence long forgotten, revive joy and hope long abandoned, and promote human fellowship against the forces of egotism. Wow, that's pretty good stuff. Now, it's interesting, loving kindness, compassion, sympathetic joy, they seem a little more proactive than equanimity. Because with loving kindness, you're generating friendliness or love to another. With compassion, you're responding to the suffering in the world or the suffering in yourself. In sympathetic joy, you're, you're, you're kind of piggybacking on the joy of another. Where equanimity doesn't, doesn't have that kind of ultra-proactive sense to it. But, it. but it holds all these other attitudes with the understanding that everything changes, with a wise understanding that everything changes. Equanimity is, is, is the knowing that trying to hold on to everything that you like and freeze it to stay like it is, or trying to push away every little thing that you don't like, only leads to suffering. It'll wear you out. It'll exhaust you. It's like being a little gerbil on a treadmill. Push-pull, push-pull, push-pull endlessly. It's tiring. I mean, equanimity knows there's unpleasantness in the world, and a a fair amount of it. And a saner way to, to... recognize and to be in this world is, is to understand, well, we can't control it all. We just can't. And you can't expect conditions in life to give up continuing uh, pleasure, continuing gain, and you can't expect to get continuing praise. I mean, I said earlier that equanimity is like the glue for these other Brahma Viharas, but it's really much like a warm embrace of them. It really holds them in a beautiful way. Another way to describe equanimity it is that it is the radical non-interference with the flow of our senses. The radical non-interference with the flow of our senses allowing it all to arise and pass, but not grasping and pushing on everything. It's this this allowing. It's the difference between a life that's 
that's either like this or like this and a life that's like this. And we always mention equanimity is balance. Its characteristic is to relax the mind before it falls into one extreme or another. And I'll talk a little more about those extremes as in, in a few minutes. Gina mentioned the Taoist concept of a life being a thousand joys and a thousand sorrows. I'm going to read you a little piece from Joseph Campbell. And he was, here he was addressing a convention of teachers. There were educators, teachers, there were people, medical people, but they were basically involved in teaching. And he was the keynote speaker. And he said this, so if you really want to help this world, what you will have to teach is how to live in it. And that no one can do who has not learned how to live in the joyful sorrow and sorrowful joy of the knowledge of life as it is. And that no one can do who has not learned how to live in the joyful sorrow and the sorrowful joy of the knowledge of life as it is. I like that little turn of the phrase, joyful sorrow, sorrowful joy. And this from the Buddha, praise and blame, gain and loss, pleasure and pain, fame and disrepute are the eight worldly winds. They ceaselessly change. As a mountain is unshaken by the wind, so the heart of a wise person is unmoved by all the changes on this earth. As a mountain is unshaken by the wind, so the heart of a wise person is unmoved by all the changes on this earth. It doesn't mean that there's not compassion. It means that there's a steadiness, an acceptance, But sometimes it's hard to embrace the, uh, the painful, difficult times that we face. You know, to feel as connected to those kind of uh, phenomena as we are to when things are more favorable, when conditions are kind of heading in our more pleasurable direction. But the way that nature is set up uh, we, it can't all be in a particular fashion. This mix, this joy, this sorrow. This is a uh, little story from uh, the Buddha's time in his monastery. One day, a man visited the Buddha's monastery seeking some knowledge of the teachings. The first monk he came upon was deep in silent meditation and did not answer when the man spoke to him. The visitor became enraged and stomped away. But the next day, he came back and happened upon a learned, erudite disciple who responded to his question about the teaching with a lengthy, intricate discourse. Once, once again, the man became furious and went off. He came back again the next day and chanced upon the Buddha's disciple, Ananda. Now, Ananda had heard what had happened on the first day when the monk said nothing at all and what had happened on the second day when the monk replied at great length. So he was very careful to deliver only a medium-length discourse. Something, but not something so very long. And amazingly, the visitor once more became enraged. He said to Ananda, how dare you treat such weighty measures so sketchily? And for the final time, he ran away. 
when the monks approached the Buddha and described what had happened on each of these three days, the Buddha wisely replied, There is always blame in this world. If you say too much, some people will blame you. If you say a little, some people will blame you. And if you say nothing at all, some people will blame you. So there is that deep spiritual concept of the rock in the hard place. And we'll find ourselves there occasionally. I mean, no one only experiences pleasure, experiences only gain. It's just not natural. I mean, not even Lady Gaga. Well, maybe she does. She seems to kind of fly above it all. But most of the rest of us don't. Here's a little piece. The Buddha was uh, educating his son Rahula at the time. And I think Rahula was a teenager. Those of you that are parents can imagine these kind of discussions. Um, So the Buddha said to him, Rahula, develop meditation that is like the earth. For then agreeable and disagreeable sensory impressions will not take charge of your mind. Just as when people throw what is clean and unclean on the earth, feces, urine, saliva, pus, or blood, the earth is not horrified, humiliated, or disgusted by it. In the same way, agreeable and disagreeable sensory impressions will not take charge of your mind when you develop meditation like the earth. When you think about it, it's really true. Anything can be going on on this planet. Wars, flood, drought, famine, anything. And the earth quietly sustains its own integrity. I've enjoyed, uh, whenever I've bumped into it, that PBS special, something like um, When People Are Gone, and it kind of jumps to the future, what it would be like if there's no people in New York City, and the buildings start falling down in a couple thousand years, and birds are roosting there, and moose are walking around, and all the pavement has things growing. It's like, the earth can handle us, you know? We may do ourselves in, but the earth is going to come back. So that's the kind of meditation, that's the kind of, you know, power of equanimity that the Buddha was talking to his his son Rahula about. And the story of the Buddha's enlightenment, that's another great example of equanimity. Very briefly, for those of you who aren't aren't familiar with the story, the Buddha had been practicing for six years, really practicing hard, just like you are today, only he extended it for six years. And so he's feeling this energy is coming up, and this is going to be the night where he's really going to see clearly. He's really going to totally wake up. And so he's going to sit down under this tree and just stay there until he really understands what the deal is. And so there's this legendary god of destruction called Mara, who's always kind of lurking around trying to throw the Buddha off. At that point, he wasn't the Buddha. He was the Bodhisattva on his way to Buddhahood. And so he sits there, and first Mara sizes him up. So, okay, I'm going to scare the hell out of him. And so he generates all these, all these, these legions of fearsome soldiers and battle elephants and frightening beings and sends them at the Buddha from all directions, above, below, around, you know. And so the Buddha just sits there. And it's not that he wasn't feeling fear. It's how he was working with it. Feeling it, watching it change, move through his body, allowing it, not reacting. It's just calm. Worked through the fear. All right, Mara's looking at him saying, okay, that didn't work. What's next? I know. This guy's a virile young man. I know what he likes. I remember when he was a prince, those parties he used to be at. I know, I know what he was like. And so he sends this time beautiful women, perfumes, etc., and all up close to him, kind of dancing around in front of Buddha. 
It's not that he wasn't feeling lust, desire. It was how he was working with it. Not pushing, not pulling on it, allowing it to move through. Finally, settles out. Like all phenomena, lust or fear, it kind of flowers, rises up, and then dissipates. So he rides it out. He's calm. And Mara's like, what do I do now? One last shot. He starts berating him. You puny little yogi, you know, off studying this esoteric weird stuff. What right do you think that you have to wake up? You're a nothing, you know. You've never succeeded at this before. You, there's no way this is going to work for you. So he starts going at him with doubt, with doubt. So the Buddha's sitting there. He's been practicing a long time. He's given up his family, his uh, everything. Uh, but he's not awakened. And so there is doubt. He's feeling the doubt. And some of you have felt it today. And he works with it. He feels it. He allows it to move through. He puts his fingers, puts his hand down on the earth. In a way, inviting the earth to bear witness to his right to wake up. And the earth does. And he wakes up. And so it's through this power of equanimity, or one way to look at the Buddha's enlightenment, that power of equanimity served him in that, in that very important moment. And so like the Buddha, you all will struggle with the fear, the wanting, the doubt. And equanimity can serve. There's a real quality of sweetness in a ripened equanimity, of deep, deep peace. In fact, the Buddha talked a lot about it in terms of the, what he called the fourth jhana, one of these very deep concentration, states of concentration. It's a state that's so deep and still and peaceful that the mind does not, does not move toward or away from anything. It's at perfect rest. It's beautiful. That's where this path is carrying you. Now, from the sublime to the caution. We can't not talk about the caution here. There's a near enemy of equanimity that needs to be mentioned. And a near enemy is something that looks like equanimity, but isn't. And that near enemy of equanimity is indifference. And it's a broad category of indifference. It's easy, it's easy for us to see the ones on the one end of indifference. You know, I hate it. I don't want to have anything to do with it. But there's some more that are a, a, little, a little tricky. There's flavors of indifference. And I'm going to read you some of these flavors of, of indifference. The enemies of equanimity, the near enemies of equanimity. And they're all, if you think about it, as I say them, they're versions of aversion, versions of not wanting. So just kind of contemplate these. Escapism. Fear. Denial. Delusion. Complacency. Resignation. Acquiescence to oppression. Numbness. Moral insensitivity, intellectual aloofness, grasping, cynicism, and 
privilege. Privilege seems a little odd. What do you mean by that? Point being that if you think your life is in such a good place, that it's so good and peaceful because you've got privilege, you've detached yourself from suffering. It's a false equanimity. And all those, they can appear like equanimity, but they're not. Because compassion is a part of equanimity. If it's not there, it's something other than equanimity. Equanimity isn't numbed out or cut off in any way or escapist. It's connected. So it's not a passive state. I mean, some people we know, and you can think about this in your own, your own life, you probably know some people that are really cooled out. They can just handle anything. But they're not very warm. There's no compassion there. You know, they're, they're missing something. And on the other hand, we know people that are just, their hearts are just so big and all over everything that, and they're, they're very compassionate, but they lose themselves. They have no balance. They get lost. They get burnt out. Another way to look at equanimity is, it, is that it is the strong back that supports the soft front of compassion. Equanimity allows you that radiant, calm peace to receive the world, to really receive the world. And at the same time, this is one of these paradoxes, it allows you to let go of the world. A lot of paradoxes in this this practice. Beautiful, aesthetically. Here's a couple of um, uh, short um, poems by Basho, the Zen poet. And just see if you can feel the equanimity in these. First one. Fleas. Lice, the horse pissing by my pillow. I mean, there's an attitude there of acceptance. (laughs) You can imagine him sleeping out in some barn somewhere. You know, he was a meandering monk. Here's another one. See see if you can measure up to this equanimity. Uh, I have a problem with this one. I'm okay with, not so bad with that one. But this one. Since my house burned down, I have a better view of the rising moon. (laughs) How many are good with that? Okay. Now, we we care about the, the, the people we love a lot. And we want to alleviate their suffering. We care about what's happening in the larger world. War, environmental degradation. I mean, we just feel it. We just feel it in our hearts, in our whole body. We care. It's our natural response. It's the beauty of being a human. How do we hold all this? The personal and the global. How can we hold it without succumbing to burnout, without having to turn away or deny? It's really, the answer is really in the cultivation of this equanimity practice. As we sit here and practice, and we work with phenomena, allowing them to come and go, some of it's very intense, some of it's very beautiful, whatever it is, we begin to train in equanimity like that. This is from Thich Nhat Hanh during the Vietnam War. He was a, uh, he was a monk and uh, uh, protesting in Saigon and other places in Vietnam. And so he wrote this. 
Flare bombs boom on the dark sky. A child claps his hand and laughs. I hear the sound of guns and laughter dies. But the witness remains. Flare bombs boom on the dark sky. A child claps his hand and laughs. I hear the sound of guns and laughter dies. But the witness remains. Can we be with the suffering on this planet with equanimity? The balance required in a spiritual practice is fairly delicate. To, get, to care really deeply, but not tumble into identification, getting lost. but always at the same time not losing our compassionate heart. When equanimity deepens, it really allows our heart to stay open more and more of the time and in difficult situations. It can show us the way to appropriate action. Equanimity brings, brings wisdom because it's a mind that's clear, balanced, and open. And out of a mind like that, wisdom naturally flows. Last night I talked about the aspects of the practice. Out of that quiet, balanced, calm mind, insights arise. We, we can then discern better how to act, when to act, and when not to act. At its foundation, Equanimity is just letting go over and over again. Those of you who um, are parents have gotten to, you've practiced equanimity a lot with your children. I know you have. My daughter especially, boy, she's grown now. But even from a small child, willful was an understatement. She seemed to know what she was doing. And my role was basically try to set some boundaries as best I could, give a little input where I could see the teachable moments. And as she grew into a teenager, I had to extend those boundaries or it was like nuclear holocaust in the household. And now, as a young woman, uh, I basically give advice when asked. Um, and I recognize the fact that she, like myself and everyone else that I know um, is kind of navigating her own way. She will make mistakes that will cause her suffering. She'll find ways to recover from that. So there's that wise edge of both caring and allowing. Caring yet accepting. Caring and sometimes taking your hands off the controls when it's appropriate. And as you move through life, when you recognize that there's a moment coming up here that, gee, equanimity would be helpful here. If you can just recognize that's what's needed, pause, then incline the mind toward equanimity. Take a nice breath. And then, may I accept things as they are. May I accept things as they are. That mindfulness that we're developing here, that can recognize what's happening when it's happening. When we see that we're stuck in this pushing and grasping and wanting and back and forth, we recognize that. we're able to relax and let go. It all starts with this mindfulness that you're honing in a day like this. You see, the, the universe is way too big, way too big for you to control. But it's actually the perfect size to let go of. 
Thank you for your attention. So we'll be, um, we, we have put a basket with some uh, short, some small note paper outside in front of the bulletin board. And um, what, if you have questions, we'd like you to write them down and put them in the basket. Now just a couple of comments about that. One is that it's a short, <laughs> it's a short time that we have together, and there's so much that we would like to reflect about with you, and the time is quite short. So um, we might get to those questions this evening, or we might get to them tomorrow morning. We'd like you to um, use the short paper don't use other paper. And the, the reason that they're small is because we really don't want you to proliferate over these questions. If there's a question that you have about practice or a question that you have about equanimity or a question that you came with in response to the title of the, uh, the retreat, um, please feel free to do it. We will not answer questions like, how did the earth begin? We won't. Uh, so, and you know what I mean. So, that, so, or um, you know, why am I here? So, those are questions that we leave to better souls than us. Um, but if there are questions about practice or about equanimity or about just how to practice in life and with specific uh, issues, we would be really happy to ad address those and see if you can keep the questions. Short, that would be helpful. And you don't have to put a question in the basket. If you're perfectly happy to simply practice, please feel free to continue to do so. But if there is a burning question, um, we'll try to get to as many of them as we can when we can. Okay? Thank you. Yeah, uh, time limit. Good practical idea. It's for, if so if, if you could have them by six, that would be great because it will give us a, an opportunity to, to go over them and just see um, what the categories of questions are. We may not answer every single question specifically, but if they're the same uh, general questions together, we'll put them together. So we would like to get some time to do that. Okay? Any questions about that? Good. Time for, time for uh, walking. <laughs>